All right, well, last week we ended our time in the book of Ephesians, and uh, it, what an incredible book to spend a year and a half in. But as you know, I'm about ready to head off to California in a couple weeks, and so I didn't want to jump into the book of John for a few weeks uh, and then come back and uh, kind of then we don't remember the, the beginning there. So that being the case, and since we've just been studying the book of Ephesians, I thought it might be a good idea to ask a few diagnostic questions about the church at Ephesus. For instance, what happened to the church at Ephesus? Did they thrive under the leadership of Paul and under the, and under the other leaders they had? Did they have a huge impact on their area? Did they do all that the Lord commanded them to do through the writings of Paul? We know very well what the expectations were. Paul taught them what it meant to be saved. He taught them what it meant to look like Christians, to act like Christians, to think like Christians. And at the end, of course, he taught them how to thrive and survive in this spiritual war that we're in. So what happened to the church at Ephesus? And then we also want to ask a few diagnostic questions thinking about the church at Ephesus and uh, the letter to the Ephesians about the modern-day church. In fact, if you were to ask diagnostic questions of the church today, do you think they would be the same as what people may have expected of the church during the time Paul was in Ephesus? Well, we know some of the kinds of questions, at least that people ask today. Let's talk about a few of those. If you were to ask the average Christian today, what quantifies or qualifies a good church? What makes a church a good church in good standing before the Lord? Well, one group's research says that the data points to the fact that people now prefer unconventional ways of doing church. They pointed out that as many as 75% of Christians now say they've recently watched and prefer services online. And so the implication is that so-called online church is something that many Christians deem vital and important in today's world. That same group came out with some other statistics. They say that today's church must change and morph with the culture if they are to stay relevant and they say that the church must, in quote, let go of non-essential traditions of yesterday. So I read that and I thought, well, that doesn't mean a whole lot. I wonder what they mean by non-essential traditions of yesterday. So I did a little digging into that. And one of these non-essential traditions was meeting on the Lord's Day. And I thought, well, if you think meeting on the Lord's Day, which is a direct command, is non-essential, what in the world do you believe the church ought to be doing that makes it a faithful biblical church? Well, it didn't take long before I found the answer. Here are some of the things they said. They insisted that instead of focusing on the Lord's Day, the church should focus on things like serving the poor. So, okay, well, we should focus on serving the poor. That's, that's a good thing. Instead, but not instead of, obviously, 
They said we should focus on singing in homes with our families. Well, that's very interesting. We get that a lot of in our city, don't we? We don't need to come to church. We just worship the Lord at home. The church should focus on bringing food to the homeless or offering clothes to the naked. They implied in all of this that the church that doesn't prioritize these things over the Lord's Day service make themselves unproductive and unhelpful to the community. So I suppose they would say that a church the Lord would honor would not worry so much about what you do on the Lord's Day, but if you're feeding the poor and clothing the naked and that sort of thing, and just minimize that Lord's Day service. So here the diagnostic questions have to do really with how much you do in the community, and that was their standard of measure. And over several other uh, different surveys, you found very similar things. If you were to ask them, what does the Lord care about the most in the church? Their answer would essentially be, he cares the most about what you do in the community, the work that you do. Are you feeding the poor? Are you clothing those who need clothes, et cetera, et cetera? Well, in a 2021 Barna study, it showed that 58% of Christian parents joined their churches initially based on children's programs. And so here's an indicator that what most parents find most important in a church are programs, especially for their children. One of the church's most commonly asked questions, and it is certainly the most commonly asked question I've received over the years, is questions about worship. And by worship, what they mean is the music. That we rightfully understand worship to be everything we do on the Lord's Day. When we sing, we're worshiping. During the preaching and teaching of the Word, we're worshiping. And even as we fellowship with one another, we are doing it as an act of worship. But what they mean is, am I going to like the music? Is it going to make me feel good? And so for many, the health of a church or whether or not the Lord would approve of a church is related to how they perceive their experience during the time of worship and song. Well, in today's world, these, types, these are the types of questions you hear when you ask professing believers what they think the Lord would honor in a church. If the church has music that moves you every Sunday, it must be a good church. God's blessing must be there. If the pastor can keep you laughing with funny jokes and can keep you entertained with clever stories and can keep you gripped with emotional pleas, then it must be a God-honoring church. If there's a thriving youth ministry, we hear that a lot in our community, or a place where parents can leave their kids for a few hours and just enjoy the sermon without distraction, then it must be a church that God surely honors and loves. And for others, it's all about how much the church does in the community, as we've already seen. And if the church does enough in the community, if the community likes the church enough, then surely that's a sign that God would say, yes, stamp of approval. But then the question is, are these the things that the Lord 
really expects of the church. Are these the things that the Lord expect of, expected of Ephesus? Did He expect programs and emotional pleas and fashionable music that made people feel good and leave with an experience? Did He expect a church that left the community with the sense that they were just an awesome humanitarian aid facility? And in the end, how did Ephesus end up anyway? Well, already you've gathered that none of these things that we've read and these statistics are talked about are mentioned in the epistle of the Ephesians. You've gathered that over the last year and a half we've been in the book. And I will say, if these things are done well, there's nothing wrong inherently with having Sunday school. There's nothing necessarily wrong with children's, children's programs if they're done in a biblical manner. There's certainly nothing wrong with feeding the poor or caring for widows. We should do all of those things as we have opportunity to do so. But you'll notice that none of these things are what Paul focused on in the book of Ephesians. And we also find that very intriguing that the questions people ask today of the church are really questions that you just can't find in Scripture. And it begs the question then, if these things aren't the important things, then what is the important thing? What is the important thing? What is the primary task and role of the church? If God were to write a letter to the church and say, this is what I approve of and this is what I don't, what would he say? Well, as it turns out, we know exactly what God would say, at least to the church in Ephesus, because we have such a letter. So if you would, turn with me for this morning to the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation, it's an easy one to find. It's the last one. And we're going to look at chapter 2 as we read our portion of the text for this morning. You see, God did, in fact, write six rather, sorry, seven specific letters to various churches in Asia Minor. This is the letter to the church at Ephesus. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, this is the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands, says, I know your deeds and your toil and perseverance, and that you cannot bear with those who are evil. And you put to test those who call themselves apostles, and they are not. And you found them to be false. And you have perseverance and have endured for my name's sake. You also have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you left, you have left your first love. Therefore, remember from where you have fallen and repent and do the deeds you did at first. But if not... I am coming to you, and I will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. Yet this you do have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. That's quite the letter. Before we dive into this 
letter this morning, let's just do a little review of Ephesus and the church in Ephesus. Ephesus was undoubtedly the most influential and major city in Asia Minor. When we talk about Asia Minor, we're talking about modern-day Turkey area. It was the home of the Roman governor at the time, Tiberius Julius Celsus Palaeminus. The city was thriving. It was a thriving metropolitan. It was filled with entertainment. There were Olympic-like games held there. There was a coliseum, a theater that could hold over 20,000 people in this old city. And on top of all of that, Ephesus was a port city, which really made it the hub of the region. And so it wasn't the official capital of the area, but it essentially functioned like the capital. I mean, sort of if you think of like Alaska, right? When you think of the, the capital or the biggest city in Alaska, nobody thinks of Juneau, unless you live there, right? You think of Anchorage. Everyone thinks of Anchorage. Well, this is sort of the case here. It was functionally the capital of the area. It was a place of extreme wealth. It was a place of great freedom. It was abundant in luxuries, but it was also a deeply dark spiritual place. In fact, one of the seven great wonders of the ancient world, which we know was found in Ephesus, the temple of the goddess Artemis, or Diana, those interchangeable. And so it was a place of mass, mass pagan practice. Festivals to the goddess, there were rituals everywhere, and there were those who practiced all sorts of magic. Now, the temple itself, a little bit about the Temple of Artemis, it was indeed quite a spectacular structure. Not only was it a place of pagan worship, but it was also a bank. It was also a bank. Uh, many of the nobles and higher-end folks would hold their precious valuable sort of in the core of this temple. And not only was it a bank and a place of pagan worship, but it was also a place where criminals could go to find safe harbor. How do you like that? Put a really high-end bank right where you have a bunch of criminals. Um, that must have made for an interesting and unique situation most of the time. But not only that, all over the temple on the outskirts, you could find idol makers, all sorts of blacksmiths and silversmiths and carvers, people who would fashion together idols that you could take home with you to help in your worship to Artemis. In addition to that, the city, and this is sound a lot like what we experience nowadays, once a year they held a massive festival for this pagan worship. It lasted an entire month. Kind of sounds like our month of June, doesn't it? But it was filled with all sorts of entertainment and celebrations and feasts all dedicated to the worship of Artemis. And so here, in the middle of all of this, we have this little church right in the center, the church at Ephesus, right in the midst of a pagan city that's rife with criminals, greed, sorcery, and vile pagan worship. By the way, if you've ever seen uh, the carved image of Artemis, it's, rather, it's a rather grotesque image. I'm not going to describe it. Um, because it is a bit grotesque. And then the worship of her was even worse. 
the church at Ephesus, in reality, was in one of the most debauched places you could possibly imagine. There were thousands of service of servants in service to the temple there. There were plethora of men who were castrated specifically in order to serve in the temple. There were thousands of priestesses who were basically just temple prostitutes. There were dedicated heralds or evangelists for Artemis that would go out into the city and try to beckon people to worship. And there were all other sorts of some of the vilest displays of immorality. In fact, you've heard a little bit about some of the um, idol worshipers and the idol makers in Acts chapter 19. You'll recall the apostle talks about a silversmith who opposed him. Well, that silversmith was in Ephesus. That all unfolded um, in Ephesus. He made silver shrines to Artemis. Um, in fact, I've got my page marked here. I wanted to uh, just bring this part out. So here's in Ephesus, uh, in chapter 19 of 24, we read a little bit about kind of how these idol makers viewed the Christians in Ephesus. Uh, in verse 24, it says, For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, was bringing no little business to the craftsmen. And so they were making all kinds of money, hand over fist. These he gathered together with the workers of similar trades and said this, Men, you know that our prosperity is from this business. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul, this Paul, has persuaded and turned away a considerable crowd, saying that these things made with hands are not God's. And not only is there danger that this trade of ours fall into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis be considered as worthless, and that she, whom all of Asia and the world worship, is even about to be brought down from her majesty. Well, this is how the citizens of Ephesian, of, the, of Ephesus, viewed Paul and the church at Ephesus. And so this little church was making waves. Certainly, Paul was making waves and he was messing with their money, messing with their money. And here in the middle of all of this, you have this little church right in the heart of it, in the heart of a city that hates them, in the heart of a city who wants nothing to do with them because they're messing with their money, they're messing with their God. You'll recall that the Apostle Paul tells the Ephesians kind of throughout the epistle to act like Christians, right? You remember, I mean, we went through, uh, you got sort of the first three chapters of Ephesians, all that very rich doctrine and theology. In the last three chapters of Ephesians, Paul's putting uh, practical application on that. And you'll recall when we were going through Ephesians, remember how often Paul said things like, don't be like the Gentile, stay away from immorality. Now you sort of get a picture of where he's coming from because it's all around them, right? It's all 
around them. Uh, In verse 1 of chapter 4, Paul tells the Ephesians, walk worthy of the calling with which you've been called. In verses 19, 17 through 19, he says, walk no longer just as the Gentiles walk. Now, he's likely thinking of all of this going on in Ephesus. Walk no longer like the Gentiles in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their mind, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. And they, having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. So we sort of see why Paul is saying this kind of thing, because Ephesus was a city rife with immorality. I mean, it was everywhere. There was nowhere to turn in Ephesus without being inundated by godless pagan worship and utter depravity. And so when we think about that scene in Ephesus, it sort of gives us a very real understanding of why Paul constantly was telling the Ephesian church, who, by the way, they were saved out of this lifestyle. This is where they lived. And he's constantly saying, don't go back. You left that life. This is not how you learned Christ. Stay away from this immorality. Ephesus, in fact, was so riddled with sin. Listen to this. Heraclitus, or Heraclitus, however his name is pronounced, he was an unbelieving philosopher of the day, right? He's not a Christian. He was a philosopher, a well-known philosopher and nobleman. Listen to what he says of his own city. He says, and I quote, they would do well to hang themselves, every grown man of them, and leave the city to the beardless lads. That's quite the quote for a pagan to look at the pagans in his own city and say, we better if they just all hung themselves. Well, that's not all he had to say. Again, this isn't a Christian. He's just a philosopher of the day. He went on to say, and I quote, no one could live in Ephesus and not weep over its immorality. It has to be pretty bad if a pagan is concerned about immorality. He called the city the darkness of vileness. And then he goes on in another time and says that the city, the citizens of Ephesus were, quote, lower than animals, and the inhabitants of Ephesus were only fit to be drowned. And here you have this church. I mean, what a city. You will talk about a place to plant a church. This is where Paul plants a church, right in the middle of this. What a city. And here we have this little church, this light set on a hill. So let's talk about this church plant in Ephesus a little. This church had some of the best in terms of leadership. Paul founded the church. He planted the church. They had Apollos who was there, who was revered as an incredible speaker and man of full of faith. Paul himself was there for three years. In fact, it's the place Paul stayed the longest out of any of the churches. And so he was there pastoring for three years. Of course, Priscilla and Aquila were there, and they had better instructed Apollos in the ways of baptism and the Holy Spirit. And then they had Timothy, who was discipled by Paul, who eventually took the church there. 
And then lastly, they had another apostle, the apostle John, who was the last living apostle, the same apostle who wrote the Jehannian epistles, 1st and 2nd and 3rd John, and penned the book of Revelation. He also was there in Ephesus. I mean, you couldn't ask for better leadership in a church. So they had all the right teaching in this church. They had the perfect doctrine taught to them. And there were certainly no weak, weak links in the chain of command, so to speak, as much as it's possible to say that about humans. And if there ever was a church where you think they've got all the right stuff, the Lord's stamp of approval must be on this church, it would be the church at Ephesus. I mean, there were all kinds of miracles. The church at Ephesus, again, in Acts 19. Let me just find it here. You probably heard of the seven sons of Aceva who tried to cast out a demon, and the demons responded and said, well, basically, we, don't, we have no idea who you are. We know who Jesus is, and we know who Paul is. We don't have any idea who you are. There were such miracles that were worked in Ephesus that at one stage, let me see if I can find it here. Oh, here we, here we go. Uh, 19 down to 17. Listen to this. This is the impact the church was having. And this became known to all, both Jews and Gentiles who lived in Ephesus, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was being magnified. Verse 18, chapter 19. Also, many of those who had believed kept coming, confessing and disclosing their practices. Well, what practices? And many of those who practiced magic brought their books together and were burning them in the sight of everyone, and they counted up the price of them and found it to be 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord was growing mightily and prevailing. So this church not only had the right leadership, not only had the right doctrine, but they were, God is blessing the work. They were doing miracles and things were happening. But then... God sends Ephesus a letter. Not only Ephesus, but six other churches. And in this letter, you find the true litmus test for faithfulness. The question is answered concerning what God wants primarily in His church. What makes a good church? You see in the letter what the main thing is. I think it's important that we find what we find in the letter to Ephesus and that Ephesus is the first listed here. You know what it's not? It's not programs. It's not ministry. It's not the music. It's not even community service. It's not phenomenal preaching. They certainly had that. It's not music that moves you. But let's jump into this letter specifically. Verse 1, to the angel of the church in Ephesus, write... So here we have one of those unique scenarios where John is basically dictating this letter. Someone has told John, write this. Okay? So who is the angel? Who is the letter being written to? Well, angel comes from the word angelos, which just simply means messenger, okay? And so angelos can be an angelic messenger. It can be a human messenger. In this case, it's the messenger or pastor of the church of Ephesus. To the angel of the church of Ephesus, to the pastor of the church in Ephesus, to the leaders of the church of Ephesus write, 
This is the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand. The one who walks among the seven golden lampstands says. So who's the author? Well, we know the author is, quote, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands. So if you go back one chapter, we find the answer specifically. Go back to chapter 1, put your eyes on verse 9. This will kind of give us some needed context. Revelation 1, let me just read through verse 20, 9 through 20. I, John, Apostle John, your brother and fellow partaker in the tribulation and the kingdom and perseverance which are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos because the word of God and the witness of Jesus Christ. So Paul, I'm sorry, John is actually in prison. Right, They've sent him to the island of Patmos as a punishment. He says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, Write in a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, And in the middle of the lampstands, I saw one like a son of man. Now, that phrase, son of man, is often used to describe Jesus. Clothed in a robe, reaching to the feet, and girded across his chest with a golden sash. And his head and his hair were white, like white wool, like snow. And his eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze when it had been made to glow in the furnace, and his voice was like the sound of many waters. And having in his right hand seven stars and a sharp two-edged sword, which comes out of his mouth, and his face was like the sun shining in its power. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. And he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not fear, I am the first and the last and the living one. And I was dead, and behold, I am alive forever and ever, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Therefore, write the things which you have seen, and the things which are, and the things which will take place after these things. As for the mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. So we need to understand that God's controls all of these things, even the leaders of the churches. And the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So it's very clear that Jesus himself is the author of this letter. Now, we understand from Genesis to Revelation, ultimately, all of this is the word of God. It's all inspired by the Holy Spirit. And sometimes the authors wrote by inspiration. Sometimes they dictated They were dictated to. And then like the Ten Commandments, God himself wrote in his own hand. Here we have Jesus dictating to John, saying, John, write this. That's an incredible thought that Jesus himself is writing this letter to the church at Ephesus. It's also a terrifying thought. I don't know how I would initially react if I was about to open a letter that I knew was dictated by Christ. I'd probably be a little frightened. So this letter is to the church and the elders of the church at Ephesus, and it's from Christ himself. Now, it's interesting, the format of this letter is that he opens with telling them what they've done well and 
Then he gives what he has against them, and then he ends with something else they've done well. Let's just go through this together. He says, I know your deeds and your toil and perseverance, that you cannot bear with those who are evil, and you put to test those who call themselves apostles, and they are not, and have found them to be false. So this tells you a lot about the church at Ephesus, what kind of character in church they were. I mean, so the word toil here literally means toil, means to work until you're exhausted. You haven't toiled until you've worked till exhaustion. This was a busy church. They weren't apathetic about the faith. They weren't lazy. They didn't just come to Sunday mornings, as it were. They weren't just meeting once a day and then doing nothing the rest of the week. They were serious about doing the things that Christians ought to be doing. And not only were they busy, but they toiled. They worked tirelessly. Not only did they work tirelessly, but the Lord says that they persevered in that work. In other words, they never quit. They kept going and kept going. They never gave up. If you were to look at a church that could be described like this today, it would be a church where everyone is always doing something. Right? They're always feeding the poor. They're always helping the widows. They're always visiting the orphans and the sick. The parking lots are always full. The Sunday schools are always full. The prayer meetings are always full. They're active. They're faithful. And God is commending this. He's saying it's a good thing that they're doing these things. In addition to this, being busy with God's work, the Lord says that He knows that they cannot bear those who are evil. In other words, they took dealing with sin serious. This was a church who practiced church discipline. I mean, that should be no surprise, right, with all the apostles and the extraordinary leaders they had in the church, but they took sin seriously. They didn't just let sin run rampant in the church. They dealt with it. They practiced church discipline. They didn't tolerate those who professed Christ but who also lived in unrepentant sin. And the Lord commends them for this attitude. Beyond that, He says they had spiritual discipline. They were not only able to deal with sin in their midst, but they were also able to test and call out false teachers and false teachings. And they did that. They weren't afraid to guard the church against false teachers. So, this was a church that knew their Bible. I mean, they knew the Scriptures. They knew what authentic Christianity looked like. They could tell the difference between a clever wolf and a sheep. They could tell the difference between Joel Osteen and John MacArthur. And they kept the evil out of the church. And they did it continually, continually, and they didn't grow lackluster in all of this. If you were to look at this church from the outside, it would be a vibrant, thriving, growing, impactful church in the middle of a city like Ephesus. Well-hated, no doubt, but faithful. They loved what was good. They hated what was evil. And God commends all of this. He's saying, this I know about you, and this is good. And then things change in verse 4. 
you come to verse 4, and you come to that word, but. Now, in Ephesians, in the epistle to Ephesians, we came across that word too, remember? And it was a good word. It was the glorious revealing of the majesty of Christ intervening in the life of the unbeliever. Right in, in, in that chapter in Ephesians, he was saying that you were dead once in your trespasses and sins, but now God being rich in mercy because of His great love, He's made us alive in Christ. Well, unfortunately, this little coordinating conjunction is not always positive, and that's the case here in this letter. God says, you've done all this really well, but, but I have this against you. And that ought to cause our hearts to drop a little. When the Lord looks at you and says, you're doing all this well, but this I have against you. It's a serious thing. It's a serious thing. What's he say? But I have this against you, that you've left your first love. And here, folks, we have the reality of what is most important in the church. You can be the busiest church on the block. You can keep in mind the, all the commandments that the Lord's given. You can be busy. You can do the right things. Ephesus was doing the right things. I mean, they were looking after their doctrine. They cared about doctrine. They cared about holiness. They were guarding the church against what was evil. They were building one another up. But they lacked the most important thing. They left their first love. The one thing that matters to God more than all the others. And mind you, the other things need to be there. And you'll see that if you read the other letters to the other churches, that he addresses some of these things that Ephesus was doing well that these other churches aren't. But if you're doing all of those things and you've missed the main thing, then God has something against the church. And as a believer, God has something against you. We've got to keep, as Stephen Lawson says, the main thing, the main thing. And all of these other things are meant to flow out of that. You can get busy and just do the religious stuff. But what he had against Ephesus was that they left their first love. You see, the Lord was able to see past all of their labors. You know, we can't do that necessarily. We see people who are attending church and who are faithful and who are busy for the Lord and they're doing all the right stuff. But the Lord can see past all of that and He peers into the depths of our heart. And He can tell whether or not we're doing what we're doing out of love for Him or something else. He peers into the hearts of man and looks at the motivation. So the reality is that God doesn't simply want some of you this morning. He wants all of you. He wants all of you. God desires devotion, not just your duty. He seeks sincerity, not just your service. God wants true worship, not heartless works. And God wants not just your mind and your body, but your heart also. What the Ephesians lacked here really was the greatest commandment. 
They had everything else right. But they lacked the greatest commandment. Remember, if you'll recall in the book of Matthew, the Pharisees came to Jesus and they were trying to trap him. And so they're coming to him and they said, Teacher, what is the great commandment in the law? And in verse 37 of chapter 22 in Matthew, Jesus replies and he says this. He says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. And he goes on to say the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. And so the main thing is love for Christ. The main thing is love for Christ. And let me be real clear. We're not talking about this sort of sloppy, secular, sloppy, effeminate, westernized, ooey-gooey feeling love. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about the love of total devotion for the King of kings and the Lord of lords. All of your heart, all of your soul, all of your mind, and all of your strength. That's what the Ephesians were missing. And it wasn't that they didn't once have it. He says that you've left your first love. And so he's beckoning them to come back to the zeal they once had. They had everything else. They just didn't have the most important thing. And that's not untrue for the church today. It's not about the programs. It's not about how great the worship team is. It's not about how fantastic the sermons are, how close your doctrines are even to Scripture. It's is the church doing what it's doing in obedience out of love for Christ. And if that's missing, then God has something against that church. Just like He did here. They didn't always lack that love for Christ. If you'll recall in Ephesians chapter 1, in verse 15 and 16, Paul says this. He says to the Ephesians, he says, For this reason I too, having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus which exists among you, and for your love for all the saints, do not cease giving thanks for you. In chapter 3 of Ephesians, Paul prays, and he prays that the Ephesians, that Christ would dwell in their hearts through faith, and that you being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge that you may be filled up to the fullness of God. But somewhere down the road, the Christians in Ephesus lost this love. They left their first love. Maybe they were just too busy with life. They got caught up in doing the right things, but now for the wrong reason. They were still guarding the truth. They were still calling out false teachers. They just no longer had the most important thing, love for Christ. So then in verse 5, Christ gives them a command. He brings out what He has against them, and then He says, Therefore, Remember from where you have fallen and repent and do the deed you did at first. So there's some idea in 
many Christians that once you become a Christian, the Holy Spirit and God doesn't call you to repent for anything. Well, clearly that's not true. He's calling a whole church to repent. But he says, repent. Remember where you've fallen. In other words, Remember when you first came to Christ and you were excited about the things of the Lord? You wanted to pray. You wanted to read your Bible. You wanted to be around the people of God. You wanted to share the gospel. And it was because you were so thankful and grateful that God saved you. Remember that. Remember from where you have fallen and repent. And do the deeds you did at first. In other words, do what you did at first with the heart you did it at first. He goes on and says, if you don't come, sorry. He says, but if not, if you don't return, I am coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of this place unless you. What a sobering thought. Jesus himself is dictating this letter and he says, listen, church, you're doing all these things great. I'm so proud of you. These are all the things you should be doing. But it's just that the thing you should be doing, you aren't doing. And that you've left your first love. And if you don't repent, and I want you to repent, but if you don't repent then here's the consequence, I'm going to come. And I'm going to remove the church from you. And he's not talking about losing salvation. He's talking about removing their church. Because it's not a church that's glorifying Him. And here's the reality that we need to understand. God doesn't care about the numbers in a church. And he doesn't care about how much community service you're doing out of the church. And he doesn't care if the community loves you or hates you. He doesn't care if you're guarding doctrine and you're keeping evil out. If you're doing all of that without love for him. We've got to do those other things. But if God's going to approve of us If God's going to approve of a church or the Christian, what he cares about is the heart. And so he tells the Ephesians, if you don't repent and come back to your first love, I will come and I will remove your lampstand. So again, he's just saying, remember the zeal you had when you first came to know the Lord. Or... Remember the time when you had the most zeal. Some people come to Christ and there's not necessarily, that's not necessarily the time when they had the most zeal for the Lord. Sometimes it takes a while and as you grow, you find yourself just full of zeal and vigor for the Lord. And that's what he's saying, get back to. Get back to that. You can find many Christians today doing a lot of these same things. You can also find a lot of Christians doing the exact same things unbelievers do. You can find tons of unbelievers who are feeding the hungry, who are clothing the poor, who are housing the homeless, and those are all great things. But the world can do that. 
Now, the church should do that, but God's expectation is that when we do it, He gets worship out of it. He wants our hearts. So the difference between these good deeds that some of which the world can do, which we've talked about, and the Christian ought to be, the Christian does it out of devotion to the Lord. He does it as, as an act of devotion. So the Ephesians forgot this first love, and now they're being faced with the reality of being removed as a church. That's how important devotion to Christ, love for Christ is. I mean, you have this church who, I mean, what a legacy in this church. Some of the best teachers and preachers of the early church, two apostles, I mean, fantastic teaching. In a city that miracles are happening, people are getting saved, the Lord has historically grown this church. And none of that's important when it comes to this. Christ says what's important is that you do what you do out of devotion and out of love for me. And if that's not your motivation, then I'll just take the church out. That ought to say a lot about what the most important thing is in a church. It's clearly not humanitarian aid or any of these other things. And let me be clear, when our heart is right and we love the Lord, we will do all these other things. But you can do those things with a lackluster love, with a cold love. You can certainly do those things just out of religiosity. And that's not what Christ wants. I mean, just notice Jesus himself wasn't content to leave that church just to be a humanitarian aid facility. He wasn't content to leave a church that would guard against false teachers only. He was concerned with their motivation. Does the church do good things? Absolutely. I mean, we saw that Jesus commended them first for all the stuff they were doing. So those are all good things. And we should never shrink back. We too, if the Lord had to look at us as an individual, the Lord should be able to look at your life and say, these things you're doing great. And they're all right things. We should do them, certainly. But ultimately, the church and the life of the believer is about worshiping a good and holy God. And so Jesus calls them to repent and return for their first love. After he calls them to repent in verse 6, he leaves them with one more thing that they've done well. He says, yet you do have this, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. So who were the Nicolaitans? What's this talking about? Well, there's a lot of kind of speculation and various commentaries give various opinions. We don't really know and we can't be 100% sure. But in the letter to the church of Pergamum, in the same book that we're in, the Nicolaitans are mentioned with the teaching of Balaam. The teaching of Balaam was that 
Israelites were enticed to eat things sacrificed to idols, and specifically that they engaged in sexual immorality. So whatever else the Nicolaitans believed, it seems at the very least that they encouraged sexual immorality and idolatry. And so he's saying, you hate that. I mean, this again makes sense where they are, right? The Temple of Artemis being there. He's saying that you hate that, and that's good because I too hate this. And so again, the church of Ephesus was doing all the right things. They hated all the right things to hate. They said all the right things, but in this most important thing, they lacked. Finally, at the end, Jesus says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. In other words, pay attention. To him who overcomes, I will grant to eat the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Now, we know that true believers overcome. Right? All true believers. Paul taught us in the first chapter of Ephesians that every believer is given the Holy Spirit as a seal. As a seal to the promise of their redemption. And so this is just merely a promise for those who belong to Christ. That if you belong to Christ, you will eat from the tree of life. That's this letter. The letter... To Ephesus, however, is not just a letter for Ephesus. It's very likely these were spread around to all the churches. And we have to acknowledge that the Holy Spirit ensured we had access to this letter for a reason. We can't just look at Ephesus and think, well, poor Ephesus. They got it wrong where it matters the most. Every Christian has to look at these letters and Every Christian can, and every church can look at these letters and find similarities. I think the letter of Ephesus, like I said, was placed first because it contains which, that which is most significant. A church that was to be envied, Ephesus, by all others in outward appearance. If we saw this church today, I imagine we would be shocked to hear that their love for Christ had gone cold. You would not know looking at a church like this, that their love had grown cold. But the Lord sees in our heart. So we really need to ask ourselves this morning, and and this is what I want to bear on us, you specifically and me specifically. Is this still the main thing in your life? Is love for Christ still the main thing in your life? Because if not, Christ has that against you. I mean, we're people who love truth here. We love Scripture. We aim to guard against false doctrine. We love to serve one another. And I have no complaints about our church. But I can't see in the depths of your heart and you can't see in the depths of my heart. But the Lord Jesus this morning is looking into your heart. And the question you need to answer is, what is he going to find there? Has your love for Christ grown cold or is it growing in zeal? And I don't know where you are in that 
but it's good that we take the time to examine ourselves this morning. So this is my concern for us here, is that we love doctrine so much and we want to guard against false teaching that we just sort of get into a routine and we're doing these things not because we, maybe because we love the truth, but not necessarily because we love the truth giver. And that's what we want to guard our own hearts against this morning. This was the great concern for the church at Ephesus. And you know, in the end, that church did have their lampstand removed. There's no city there now, and there's no church there. It's gone, which means they didn't repent. I mean, just think about that. I mean, they had Apollos, they had Paul, they had Timothy, I mean, they had John. They got a letter from John dictated by the Lord Jesus himself. And they still didn't repent. And so ask yourself this morning, is your heart in the right place? Because that's the main thing that God receives the glory of our lives and He receives that glory when we do what we do out of love and devotion to Him. Let me also just say this. We need to understand that as humans living in a fallen world, our zeal ebbs and flows, right? We need to understand that. We're not always going to be at the peak, and so I don't want to give that impression. But when we check ourselves and it in God's providence, we're taking communion this morning, and it's a great time to really check our hearts. Do we have that zeal for Christ, or has it grown a little cold? Have we let the cares and worries of life sort of suffocate it a little? And if so, we need that zeal back. We need to rekindle that fervor so that it doesn't die. And again, this letter isn't talking about the church in Ephesus losing their salvation. These are believers, but their love has grown, gone a little cold. And it was cold enough that God removed their church. And so the lesson this morning is that we learn from the letter to the church at Ephesus, and we take it to heart, that we just remember as much as we love doctrine and we want to do the right things and say the right things, that the main thing has to stay the main thing, love for Christ. Let's pray.